All right, so 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, while you're, you're turning there, you can... Uh, my, my kind of thought for today is, um, you know, if you were to think about kind of, I don't know, our current context, life today, if you thought about recent news events or even like current political powers, and, you know, those hot button news issues, like the things you talk about when you get together. Um, and if you thought what would be, and it could be a combination of things, would be the downfall of our nation, what would you say? I feel like some of you guys are... Loss of morality. Yes, sir. So just general loss of morality? Yes. Okay. Destruction of the family? That's loss of morality. Loss of morality. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you got the umbrella. Yeah, yeah. That's what I said. All right. Okay. <laughs> Moral relativism? Yeah. I think the church. Okay, good. The church is more in the world than, than, than a God. Than a God. I think that's the biggest issue. The church has gone and uh, lost its ways. Okay. Okay. Um, Whatever he said. <laughs> I mean, I thought I thought you guys would come up with some some more fun stuff, you know, like like artificial intelligence is going to take over our world, or you know. <laughs> so, what's that? That's a symptom, not the cause. So. That's true. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know. I think. <laughs> so, does AI have morality? So, anyway, um, you know, so so there's things that again, and if, particularly if you you know watch the news cycle and think, what are kind of those things that that um, you know are going to be world destruction or you know it's funny having these conversations with students or you know there's even like um, some people have come up with like top ten ways you know it's like alien invasion or viral outbreak or, you know, like all of those things, like how is the world going to end type of thing. Um, but as, we, as we're kind of getting to uh, the end of our studies, like that's where we're going to turn our attention to a little bit more. Um, so Second Thessalonians 2, it's not, you know, chronologically in order, um, but it kind of fits a little bit better with, uh, with what we're going to talk about. And um, so last time we were in First John chapter 5 and, and finished up the difference between believing and knowing. We're talking about skepticism and are you a brain in a vat? Did you guys determine that? I don't know. Am I a brain in a vat? Um, if you weren't here, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. But anyway, uh, but the idea, right, that the skeptic will kind of tempt us to doubt our beliefs. Um, but we as believers have this um, 
uh, prophetic kind of witness, also a historical witness for us to rely on, as well as like the internal witness of the Holy Spirit and the reliability of Scripture. And they all testify that Jesus is the Son of God. So not only can we believe these things, um, but that faith in Christ equates to eternal life with Him and have more than a sense of like, of, of I think I'm saved, but a knowledge that I am saved and these things await. So we talk about this idea, and that's what 1 John 5 kind of led us to thinking, is this idea of eternal life and future thinking. And so, you know, knowing the future can either be exciting uh, or it could fear, fill us with fear. And that's kind of also when you think about like news headlines, ones that may intrigue us or ones that like have kind of like <laughs> doom in kind of the headline. Like, ooh, I want to know more about that. Um, and so for the church at Thessalonica, um, this kind of future thinking was causing them anxiety. And so Paul, in his writing, wants to ease their minds and, and clear up any misunderstandings that they have. And uh, it benefits us because what he says to them is helpful for us, particularly if we even look at the context of the letter. The things that Paul talks about in the letter, he doesn't talk about um, in any of his other letters. So really, like their concerns have been a benefit because he's able to address them and give more clarity on the, the topic. So today is going to be a lot of like setting up. We'll maybe get through a few verses today, um, but I want us to kind of have an understanding of what's going on. And so first is like the context of the Thessalonians, like what were they going through? So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 17, you can follow along, or I'll just read some of these verses um, and kind of understand when Paul gets to Thessalonica, you know, what, what was happening. And so we read in, in verse 1 of Acts 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted uh, Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. 
So we kind of see like not only the, Thess- the what happened at Thessalonica, but also what happened afterwards and how Thessalonica was even um, related to their trip to Berea. So first, what do we see in verse 4 of Acts 17? What's the makeup of the believers in Thessalonica? How, how, are, how are they described? God-fearing. What's that? God-fearing. Okay, God-fearing. Okay, so we got some Jews that are in the mix. We first went to the synagogue. What else? Men and women. women. Okay. And then, yeah, many Greeks. Okay, so we've got some Jews, many Greeks, and then Paul even throws in there, and not a few leading women. And so when he goes to Berea, it says something similar um, when, uh, when he goes there. All right, so that's kind of the makeup of those who are following Christ and those who Paul is going to be writing to in this letter. So a mix of Jews and Greeks and those who have some prominent positions there. Uh, who seems to be opposing the believers there? Okay, the Jews. It's even interesting when you see, like, what was the, what was the, uh, um, the charge that they laid out against uh, Paul and his companions when they drugged, you know, Jason before the authorities? Yeah. Where have we heard that before? It was exactly like what the Jews said against Jesus. So, you know, were some of them there uh, around that time at the Passover? Um, but they have the same similar charge uh, that they laid against these guys. Or is it just, you know, nothing's new under the sun? So it's the Jews, though, that are uh, having an issue with them. And then what do we know about them? What are some of the things that they did uh, in response to um, you know, Paul and, and his companions being there, these Jews. Okay, so, yeah, got a, got a group to form a mob, okay, and then what do they do? Okay, attack Jason's house, so they, it seems like some physical violence, and not only that, did... They request his presence. What does it say they did? Yeah, like physically drug him, dragged him, I guess, uh, before the, the authorities. And then when they went to, uh, when Paul left, it was kind of a comparison between the Jews in Berea and the Jews in Thessalonica. What do they say about the Jews in Berea? More noble characters. So if you think the Thessalonians were, the Thessalonians were, uh, uh, the Jews there were less noble than those that were in Berea. So the character of these Jews seems to be kind of oppressive and quick to violence and quick to be rash and even form a mob in order to get what they want. Not only that, is that they just decided when they heard that Paul went to Berea, Berea is about 40 miles from um, uh, Thessalonica, that they went there. And so if you think, they traveled 20 miles a day. They spent two days, you know, making sure that they gave Paul a hard time when he went to the next place. So if you think, like, when Paul left, he left, and you can kind of continue on the story, but the Thessalonians, who were the believers there, right, a mix of Jews, uh, Greeks, and some leading people, they were left behind with the people who lived there um, as described as such. You know, I would say it's almost this woke mob, right, if you kind of think about, um, you know, who, who's left behind. And so, um, Paul, when he's writing in, in 1 Thessalonians, 
Um, in 2 verse 2, he says, But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, right? He was thrown in jail and taken before the authorities before they made it to Thessalonica. He says, As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul like says, you know, even when I was there, there was, you know, a lot of conflict and God gave us boldness to preach the gospel. And so he understands again and acknowledges that. And so if you look at the, the, the letter that he first writes to the Thessalonians, um, in you know, first Thessalonians, the first three chapters is when he writes to them. He's writing likely from Corinth a few months later um, from when he was in uh, Thessalonica. And so um, he is kind of, again, in, in the first three chapters, he's re- reassuring them um, of who they were and the message that they preached and even the love that he has for them. And so he wants to make sure, right, that like the things that he said back then a few months ago still remain true. And he wants to, again, um, kind of... Uh, comfort them. And so if you think out of five chapters, the first three chapters are, are just kind of like, you know, making sure and reassuring them about the things that they believe. So really not to clarify any theological points, at least not yet. And so then when he gets to the beginning of chapter four in First Thessalonians, um, he kind of urges them based on the things that they believed, that when he was there and preached the gospel, and it wasn't just a one-time thing, he was there for Presumably, at least a few weeks, if not a few months, um, we don't know how many times, but he, he at least made it to the synagogue several times, and likely beyond that, before he was uh, pushed out. Um, but he wants them to, again, walk in holiness, walk in love, and reminds them of their calling as believers. And so, you get, again, towards the end of the letter, the end of chapter 4 and, and chapter 5, Paul corrects a misunderstanding about those who have died and perhaps missed Jesus' return. So most of his letter is, again, to kind of remind him, hey, when I was there, these are the things I, you know, we're of the same purpose, like, you can trust me type of thing. And then addressing one concern that they had, and it happened to be something about missing Jesus' return. And then also about the timing of Jesus' return, and then how he responds, you know, the response for them to live accordingly in light of when Jesus returns, this is how you should live. So that's kind of what's on their mind. You know, again, like, are they doubting Paul? Or are they maybe mistrusting Paul? I don't know, but that's how Paul starts his letter. And then they're having these issues about, like, maybe we even, like, miss Jesus coming altogether. And that kind of feeds into what we'll look at in Second uh, Thessalonians. And so Paul reminds them of their past, urges them to walk in love in the present, and tenth and then to think correctly about the future. And so why might that be? Paul says so in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. He says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and to all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And that idea about the coming of the Lord um, occurs five times in the two letters that he writes to the Thessalonians, this idea about Jesus coming and Jesus returning. This is what's on their minds, more so than it seems at any other letter. He, he references things, but it might be just for a verse um, or maybe a couple verses as he's talking about other theological things when he's, when he's addressing other churches. But for those that are in Thessalonica, this is like what's on their hearts and what's on their minds. And so um, 
This second Thessalonians, the book we're going to get to, is uh, written shortly after that. Um, and again, a few months probably after uh, he had written the first one. And so, in this letter, he affirms that he knows of their sufferings, but speaks of the judgment of those that are causing their sufferings. Again, who is causing their sufferings? We've already looked at this mob, this kind of rabble, who still lives in the town there, and they have to, you know, again, um, interact with these people. So, in in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 5, we read, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I mean, that's like strong language there. I mean, you know, Paul's saying like, I know you're, you're suffering right now, but there is judgment. He doesn't usually speak in these terms, even... Most of the gospel writers, when they, or sorry, most of the epistle writers, when they talk about those that are causing you suffering or affliction, um, how does how what's usually the response? What's that? Okay, so it could be it could be love on them. It could be have an understanding, right? Even if it's like authorities that are over you, that God placed authorities over you, and then how do you respond? You either live quietly or uh, let your conduct speak for you. Suffer knowing that Jesus suffered as well. Um, Paul says, don't worry. Those that uh, are causing you sufferings will be judged with flaming fire. I mean, this, this you know, realization of what they're going through. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Verse 10, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. And to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So he says, hey, though you that are suffering, you're just showing that you are worthy of the kingdom of Christ. So he kind of has that identification with the, the sufferings of Christ. But again, like I said, he shares like, and those that do not turn and repent of their sins, they will have eternal destruction. We kind of talked about that last week at First John, right? This idea that you can know um, if you, that, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that there is eternal life. And it was even brought up, well, what about eternal destruction? Yes, there is eternal life for everyone. Eternal life that John's talking about is that abundant life, the life that you want. Eternal life that Paul talks about here. Is, is the life you don't want, right? The eternal destruction, okay? And the judgment that comes with that. And so based on this teaching, um, this event will be sparked with the return of Christ, okay? And so that's kind of like where Paul says, when Christ returns, these things will happen. And so that's the context of what we're seeing in uh, leading up to chapter 2. So let's start chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. So verse 1 says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord 
has come. So, we want to kind of understand, like, what's going on, you know, that, that Paul is addressing. So, what is the worry that Paul is addressing here? Okay. Yeah, you missed it. And so, it's interesting because in, um, let's see if I can go here without, uh, if, if you go to, well, I'll pull it up in just a second. But if we go to First uh, 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 Thessalonians 5. For some reason, I was like, I don't even know why I didn't reference this. But um, let's go to First Thessalonians five. Uh, actually, let's go to four before that. Um, <clears throat> 4 verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even, though, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he's kind of already addressed this idea that, you know, some were worried, again, like I said, I mentioned like what he talked about in, in the end of this letter, worried that those, you know, that had already died, like they're going to, they're not going to be able to like be with Jesus. And so he's like, no, like everyone's going to be gathered together and there's going to be this big event. And so then he even goes in chapter 5, Now concerning the times and the season, brothers, you've no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then he continues on and talks about that, and we'll, we'll get to that at some point. I don't know if we'll get to that today um, with what that looks like. And so right away, we see in, in, back in Second Th- Thessalonians chapter 2, there's this concern right, that they may have missed it. And it's like, did you not read my first letter? Um, and Paul doesn't reference that, you know, for our benefit, because he actually goes into greater detail on what these things are going to look like. Um, he goes beyond just like the trumpet sound and what those things will entail. And that really is for our benefit in understanding how these things will come, uh, come about. So... This is like sometimes why you don't use technology. It's like helpful, but then like for some reason now every time I go to my Bible app, it like logs me out of uh, you know my notes. So not that I need them or anything. It just keeps me from rambling, <laughs> if that's possible. So all right. So the worry is that they might have missed it. Okay, come on. You know, I have been tempted to be like, write a Bible study for me. And be like, 
man, you were so much better this week. Um, <laughs> there are some things like, you know, as a teacher, we talk about that, um, is, you know, you can say, like, uh, what would be a lesson on electricity? And you can even say, like, add biblical integration to it. Um, and it's pretty, like, some of the verses that they put in there, you're like, that's pretty, that's pretty good. Some of them are like, yeah, it's a stretch. So you always have to, you know, edit some of those things. But it, it's, a, it's a good help um, for that. The idea of plagiarism, though, is, a, is another, another subject that we, we can get into after that. All right. So, so Paul says, right, that the day of the Lord might, might have come. That's the, the issue he's addressing. Now, who is Paul saying back in 2 Thessalonians um, might be saying this? Like, where, where might that be coming from? Okay, so he says kind of like three different sources. One is a spirit. What's the next one? Okay, a spoken word. Sometimes translated as a message or what else? Yeah, a letter or something written. Okay, so you've got kind of three sources. Now, the spirit, if you think like internally, you know, if Dave said like the spirit has told me, right, that this is going to happen or like what you're saying is false or really the day of the Lord in this case has already come. I don't know if you guys all knew that. So, one, even if he had an impression, he's going to have to, like, verbalize it to have anybody, like, be swayed. And so, for us to believe him would be, like, he must be some sort of prophet, right? So, this is kind of the idea of, like, a false prophet speaking, you know, um, some revelation that the day of the Lord has already come. So, Paul says, if somebody comes, like, if, if somebody says that the Spirit has told him this, the Spirit of God has led you to believe this, like, don't believe it. The next one is kind of a message. So, you know, like now that he says, I have this impression, but a message could be, well, if we look at Scripture and we look at things that like, the, you know, how Scripture has described things that are going to occur with the day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord, um, people can twist Scripture to their own ends. Um, I have a, a good example of that we might watch next week. Um, and so... Uh, so that would be kind of like a message that someone says, and maybe like taking even scripture, not like, don't trust me, trust the Bible. And what they're doing is they're taking scripture and kind of twisting it to their own ends. And then the last one is a letter, right? And he says a letter, even if it's supposedly for me, like, don't buy it. So I know you trust me, but that's something, you know, that's fraudulently con- contributed to me or one of my associates. And so all of these things, right, you know, no one would believe that the day of the Lord has come unless given good reason to believe that. And so Paul understands that what they're going through is pressuring them to kind of think in light of that. And so even a few months later, he's dealing with issues of people speaking falsely within the church. And so whatever they're experiencing is giving weight to this idea. So what do we know about the return of Jesus up to this point? Well, there's a few things. So, again, we're going to bounce through a couple places in Scripture. First one is John 14. Um, Tim had, had preached uh, from the, these verses a few weeks ago. I think, you know, Todd, you even referenced it at your, your mom's celebration of life. I feel like it's interesting that I, this Scripture keeps coming up. So, you know, about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. But in John 14, um, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Why I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. 
And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Uh, both of those times, that's the end of, end of chapter uh, 13. That's the context of like right before when Jesus says these words, like, Peter, you're going to lay down your life? No, you're actually going to deny me. And so, and that's actually in the context of like, hey, why are you leaving us? Why are you going? You know, and he's like, I have to go. And then this is what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled, right? You're going to deny me, but don't be troubled. Um, Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. So what does Jesus say, right? I'm coming back for you, and I will bring you to where I am going. So that's kind of like the coming of the Lord has this benefit. This is the positive side, right? I'm coming, and I'm bringing you, and I've prepared a place for you, and this is where we're going. And then he says after that, I'm the way and the truth of life. No one comes to you know, to the Father except through me. So great verses there. But in the context, it's kind of our understanding about Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, um, and Jesus comes back and he you know, preaches to different crowds, and he's hanging out with his disciples. In verse 6 of chapter 1, we read, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's exactly what the Thessalonians were asking. I mean, it's, and it, and it's interesting that Paul's... Um, description kind of echoes what he's saying like you are worthy of the kingdom and he has them understanding about this idea of the kingdom for the for his disciples before jesus left they have the idea of the kingdom on their minds but they think you're staying here right and you're gonna set up the kingdom now and so lord will you this time restore the kingdom to israel and he said to them it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority right paul had said it's concerning the times and the seasons, you know. So he addresses that to the Thessalonians. Uh, the Thessalonians. So, um, verse 8, But you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gather, uh, gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, right? So Jesus is leaving. You're going to see him come back. Right? Jesus said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you with me. And that same verses are kind of like describing what's happening. In Matthew 24, there's a lot that we can look at in Matthew 24, and we'll look at some sections here a little bit later. But in verse 42, Jesus says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in uh, what part of the night that the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There is a return that Jesus said. He's coming, and he's coming for you. Now, a lot of the context in Matthew 24 is he's coming also for judgment. But for those that believe, he's coming to take you, uh, take you to the place that he's prepared. So... The believers, though, in Thessalonica, right, they have this worry and fear, and their judgment 
is clouded. Like they're not thinking straight about the things that they were already told in the letter that Paul had said, when I was there, I went in detail with you. We're even going to see here that Paul says, hey, I already told you these things, but let me write them down for you um, just so you remember. So we have this idea that of the things that Jesus said, but we also have these verses of the day of the Lord and what that looked like. And so we're probably, I'm going to skip a bunch of this because there's a lot to say on the day of the Lord. But I'm going to read a couple verses um, that kind of speak to what the day of the Lord. And this would be from a Jewish understanding about this terrible day of the Lord that has been described by many of the prophets. So Isaiah has spoken about the day of the Lord in a couple places. In chapter 2, he talks about judgment and the nations and the fact that, that, um, the, that Israel was kind of being pulled to start making compromises with other nations. And in 2 verse 12, he says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Talks about this day. In, verse, in chapter 13, verse 6, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs of agony will seize them. They will be anguished like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. If we get to Matthew 24, you're going to see similar language from Jesus. Behold, the day of the Lord has uh, comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as, it, as it's rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. And he continues on, you know, uh, with some more language about that day, right? The heavens will tremble, the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Even if it's figurative language, it sounds pretty, like, you know, terrible. Um, I don't know if you'd miss that. Joel uh, <coughs> speaks of it in several places, but in, in Joel chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is right. Go in, tread, the white press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near, in the valley of decision. We'll talk about this um, in a couple chapters later. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. I read that because a lot of the times we read about the day of the Lord, it's like this great destruction. But for the people, those that are His, there is this idea of salvation and protection. And when you read kind of the New Testament authors, they they expand upon that, about how that is so and what that looks like. And again, Amos talks about, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom and no brightness in it? And then Ezekiel, which we could read the entire chapter for Ezekiel, he says, A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. And he talks about, gathering all the nations for this battle. We might look at that a little bit later um, because there's a lot of detail that he gives in Ezekiel chapter 14. Um, But 
that all that to say is again, these are the descriptions of the day of the Lord, um, and this calamity that's seen is unmistakable. But it'll also be one for salvation. So when Paul writes that there will be judgment, this, you know, this fire for those that um, are causing you suffering, this is kind of the day of the Lord part that he's talking about. And then for the believers, though, he's again trying to comfort them and reassure them that they're not going to miss it. It's going to be unmistakable. He even talked about what's going to happen, that we'll all be gathered up and Christ will take us out of this world. And then there will be judgment for those that are left. And he's going to, again, talk about what that looks like. So, um, you know, why are they, they worrying? You know, I'm going to read a, a couple more verses from Matthew 24 to kind of put maybe a little bit more context into, again, their understanding. Is in Matthew 24, verse 45, you know, Jesus, um, and we'll, we'll look at this again in a little more detail later, he says, Who then is faithful, the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, for some reason they think, like, maybe I missed it. Maybe, maybe we missed all of these things happening. This time of, like, blessing, this time of, you know, even judgment for those that are having judgment, and, like, they just missed out. So, back in chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 3, Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, so what will come before the day of the Lord? What are some of the things that he he describes? Okay, so this idea of a rebellion or apostasy, that actually is like the Greek word apostia. Um, And so this, again, uh, worldwide turning from religion or turning to a religion, but against, again, uh, you know, against, uh, you know, the one true religion, which is following the Lord. What is uh, what else will come, or what else will happen? Okay, so you got this idea of this man of lawlessness, or sometimes described as this man of sin, but somebody who is against you know law, right? Against the law of God, and that's this person will come. So there's this worldwide apostasy. Then this man of lawlessness will be revealed. Um, also described as the son of destruction. And then what will this person do? Yeah. So exalts himself against every god, an object of worship. So puts himself in a place that is, you know, against every other idol and says, you shouldn't follow any of those, you should follow me. 
It's expanded more in Revelation. We might look at, look at that um, next week. And then what's the last thing he's going to do? Well, before that, he's got two more things he's going to do. So, yeah, it says he's going to take his seat in the temple of God and then proclaim to be God. So we've got this, again, this worldwide turning from God, this apostasy, this rebellion, and turning to this man of lawlessness who exalts himself in the place of God. It's like a direct threat to God himself. Now, Jesus kind of talked about this in Matthew 24, verse 24. Or, I'm sorry, verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. And the context of this, it was kind of one of those chapters that I was like, we're skipping 24, but I know we're going to get back to it at some point uh, when we get to this. Because he says a lot. Remember, Jesus is in, you know, teaching in the temple, and he's kind of criticized. Um, there's the woman who places her last you know, coin in the, the coin box, and you know, it's almost, she's almost elevated as this person to like revere because she gave all that she had. But really what Jesus was doing was he was condemning uh, the leaders at that time to say like, how dare you take this widow's last like, you know, last dime. That's all she had. So because of her faith, you're taking advantage of this woman. And so they're walking out of the temple, right? And so he's making lots of friends. He's walking out of the temple. This is before, um, uh, before the um, Last Supper. And then uh, we see Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will be not one uh, left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, so as they look back, they just look at this massive temple and they're like, Look at this temple, like this massive temple that's built for God. And the stones would be bigger than them. There were some stones that were, you know, um, 10 feet high, large, massive stones. He says, see all these stones? Like, they're going to be toppled down, which would seem, like, ridiculous. Like, there's no way that would happen, which it did happen uh, in, in 70 A.D. when the Romans took over Jerusalem. But he says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, well, tell us when these things will be. Again, they're always curious. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, We'll see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, and the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And so if you kind of pause like, and think, like, there are a lot of times that we, in the midst of like, our own world, think, like, are we in the end times right now? There'll be like an earthquake, or there'll be like a, a war, um, and, say, and, and we'll just kind of say, like, is this it? And so Jesus is even, in their day, 2,000 years ago, are saying like, earthquakes are happening and wars are happening, but it's not happening yet. And so you'll know. Um, many will fall away, all of these things. Um, let's see here. Let's skip down towards the end. Um, verse 26, uh, or verse 25. See, I've told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. Um, actually, wait a minute. 
All right, we'll, sorry, verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by prof, the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then he talks about everybody else wanting to um, flee. And then verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will go- gather like, there's going to be lots of death that will be associated with this time. Well, this, this abomination was spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, and we looked at that when we looked at these verses. Uh, I can't remember what chapter that was when we looked, um, you know, what number we were at. But we looked at these verses and how, how Daniel meant them. In chapter 9, verse 26 of Daniel, After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he'll make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you've got this idea of like this man of lawlessness that Paul describes, Jesus has described this abomination of desolation, and he's referring to Daniel, which Daniel says there's this guy who's going to be in the temple, and he's going to cause this desolation. And so, um, again, we went into more detail because there's also like kind of a twofold reference that Daniel had with some something that happened later on in history that actually happened in the temple. But Jesus, referring to this event in the future, will say, remember that thing that happened that Daniel spoke to? He was speaking to something that's going to happen again in the future. And the idea of the week and that week and a half plays well within what is described in Revelation. And on that note, we'll kind of finish with this, with Revelation chapter 13. And how John describes what these events have been shown to him. In chapter 13, verse 1, John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This is like, seems, would someone say this whole like worldwide apostasy, they're like, man, look at this person and what he does. And they worshiped the dragon, for he, he had given the, his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There's that week and a half or year and a half as 42 months. Um, It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that uh, is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So this seems to be like a clear event. (laughs) 
um, that Paul, you know, how much detail he gave, you know, John is writing after these events and has like even greater clarity, but Paul is describing the things that he said, I've talked to you about this man of lawlessness and this rebellion, Jesus referred to these things, and so he might be, you know, bringing back the same words that Jesus had, or he may be adding some more detail, we don't know, he just refers to it, and then for our sake, he writes some of these things, and we're going to get a little bit more detail um, after this, uh, when we get to the following verses. But I want us to just kind of understand, again, the, the context of what they're in. And to even think, like, if they've been told all these things are happening, just like we've been told these things, then how come sometimes we still have doubts? And sometimes, you know, even believers follow the news stories, you know, like, the latest news story, you know, especially when we're talking about AI, is like, AI might be our downfall. Like, people have talked about that for real, like, you know, robots will become sentient and will become their slaves and all of those things. And so it's like sometimes we play that out in our minds and say, like, well, what if that happened? You know, Jesus is pretty clear, like, well, I guess it could happen, but it's not going to happen in the way that you expect. And if they have any role to play, it's going to be played out in a particular way that we're all going to, like, understand. And we're not going to know how it's going to happen but the Thessalonians who knew clearly, but they're still also like young believers. And so Paul's trying to pour into them in their understanding and remind them of the things that they've been taught and to be grounded in those things. Because when we start listening and thinking about the speculation about what could be or what may be, then that's a dangerous place for us to be. It causes us to not trust in our Lord, but to trust in these other messages that we've heard. And so we'll go into a little bit more detail, but for us, it gives us greater confidence, especially when we talk to people who don't know the future, don't know how the world will end, that for us, we have greater understanding, and we can speak into uh, other people's lives with confidence, um, but we'll continue to kind of unpack this and unravel this uh, in the week or two ahead. So any questions on any of that? I know we covered a lot of ground, a lot of scripture, but I want us to kind of have like kind of a fuller view as we start launching into uh, the rest of this chapter, which isn't very long. But any thoughts or questions? Well, you know, we're spoiled by this instant information of the Internet, good or bad or whatever, but these folks, I don't know how much time there was between when something happened and they finally found out about it. So they may not have been concerned about it. Oops, I missed it. It may have been they were concerned about, oh, my goodness, I didn't qualify. I didn't get to go because I wasn't a good enough Christian or whatever. Yeah. There was not, there could be a fear of missing it. It could be a, a fear of, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't qualify. I didn't, I didn't make the list. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a whole lot of that as well um, that that comes along with that. Yeah, and I can't. Remember, what's that? 
Yeah, and so definitely from Jesus is like things were yet for future. And then uh, there are different eschatological views, right? Views of the future, end times, um, in, in what we want to do. I can't remember how many years ago. It was like we're, we're in Woodstock Elementary, and I did a, I went through the doctrines of the church. And when we got to eschatology, it's like, you know, this is, uh, this is kind of like where we as a church believe, but there are different people who believe different things. And you start do start parsing into like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? And so, uh, yeah, I'll probably be stepping on people's toes, um, but I'll be leaving a little bit of of um, of understanding of like this could be what is happening, or this could be what is meant. So I have a strong conviction in a particular way. I know not all people are as strongly convinced, and I would just say. I'm strongly convinced, like, 60-40 type thing, where, like, I'm not 100-0. Because I think when it comes to, like, eschatology, and there's a few things, right, in Scripture that, like, I'm convinced, and this is what I teach, this is what I believe, but I also know, like, other people's viewpoints are valid. I just don't think they're as valid. But that's, for me, as, as the teacher, so I get to say that. But, um, yeah, when it comes to, that, like, what is future, what is not yet, uh, some would even say... Um, like, everything in Revelation had already passed. Like, nobody believes that they're orthodox, but, like, yes, Jesus has already returned. And so they describe it as, like, a spiritual sense and all of that. So maybe I'll touch on that a little bit next week. Um, but we can get way deep in the waters. And even in seminary, I was, like, waiting until we talked about eschatology because I was like, I have so many questions, and they just kind of passed over it quickly. And I was like, no! Like... <laughs> And I think it's because, like, hey, this is thorny, and we're all kind of in the same boat. Because it's still, like, you know, Jesus wasn't, like, you know, wasn't clear, but he's not, I'll say that, he wasn't exact on purpose, you know, because we always want to know, if I know the date, or I know more of, about all the details, then uh, we have less faith than trust in what all these events will happen. So, anyway, maybe more on that a little bit later. So you can understand it, then. What's that? So, yeah, yeah. I'm probably more than that, but uh, there's, a, there's a, a pastor. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Tom Schreiner, he was in this panel of discussion, and it was like, weren't you this other eschatology? He's like, yeah, but I'm here. But I'm like, sometimes shifting. And so, you know, I'm like, well, he's, he's studied much more than me. But anyway, so Randy. Yep. There's no, uh, there's an absolute truth, put it that way. And it can be understood in Scripture. It's not meant to be confounding to us. So we just have to work hard, be diligent in the Word, trust the Word, approach it in the right way, interpret the Scriptures in the right way, because that'll bring clarity. But I think the one thing we have to understand is why Paul even writes about these things. John writes about it, First John. Christ speaks of it, is that there is hope. It's not in this world. Yeah. Anytime we put hope in the material world, that things can and will get better because we know God provides our needs according to His riches and glory through His gracious sufficient to sustain us. But there is no hope in this world in this life. Our only hope is that which is to come, and that is the return of Christ. And that is the, the one thing that even motivates us to faithfulness now is the fact that there is hope beyond this present. It doesn't mean we're fatalists, futilists, that we give up. We strive for obedience. That's what this book brings. 
there's a desire to honor God in this world today because we will be honored ultimately. And of course, there's loved ones we care about. There's those who we know the Lord is redeeming through them. But we just await for his return with great expectation and that brings joy. Yeah, yeah. When he, um, when he says that, uh, and Ephesians says that our fight's like flesh and blood. It's not people. It's a spiritual battle that we don't see, and, and, and so a lot of people see as oh, we're fussy, but it's something bigger that we just don't see that we can't battle. We can't. So that's why we got to be in the Word, and, and the armor of God is actually the Word of God. If you have to strive for, for the Lord your sin and uh, he can use you and I think that's the biggest thing it's a spiritual uh, battle that we can't fight it and only God can do that yeah and that's why you got to be in him and be right with him yeah and we've had a taste of little things, right, that God has done, you know, even getting through a pandemic, right, and in the backside, you're like, oh, it wasn't as bad as we thought, but like in the moment, it seemed more difficult and then we look at the, like, what people actually experience and it's like, what is our faith in, and how are we grounded? And so we'll we'll explore more of these a little bit a little bit later, um, specifically since we got more verses to cover. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. Judgment. Should we as believers not be afraid of judgment? Um, let's 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 return to that question. Yeah, because I think that'd be good. I think that'd be good. I think. I mean, the answer is is yes and no. Like we're we're comforted, but there is this idea of the fear of the Lord, um, which goes before us, but what should we fear, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that's a great question, and so maybe we'll start off by that, kind of thinking that for, for next week um, to set the stage. All right, we'll end here. <laughs>